You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Will. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Chili Willy, a.k.a. Cheeto Von Tweedo. Today's episode of Music Legends is going to be a two-parter. This episode is part one, so be sure to check out part two after this, or else you'll never finish one of the craziest music legends I've done. But for now, on part one, we're going to take a deep dive into the cool water and even cooler rhymes of the West Coast. But trust me, the rhymes of West Coast hip-hop weren't always as cool as they are now. In fact, there might not even be such a thing as West Coast hip-hop if it wasn't for today's music legend. Most people see Dr. Dre as a rapper, but he surpassed that title years ago. Sit back, buckle up, and let the good doctor bring you to life as you find out just how he became a music legend. I find it fascinating that Compton, California is home to thousands of music legends. Some well-known, and others unknown and underappreciated. But they've all helped shape West Coast hip-hop into what it is today. One couple in particular was Theodore and Verna Young, who were both so heavily into music that they actually named their son Andre Rommel Young, after one of the R&B bands they were in, which was called Andre and the Runnin' Rommels. Andre's parents split up soon after he was born, and for a while, Andre was living with his mother all around California. Like too many of us, she was only trying to find love, but found herself in one abusive marriage after another. At each wedding and party, Andre's mom would let him be the DJ, and he was introduced to all kinds of music while DJing at his mother's parties. But the one that caught his attention the most was some of the most earliest forms of hip-hop. Andre was inspired to really dive deep into hip-hop when he heard the song The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. Years later, he told Vibe magazine, quote, That was what made me want to DJ. It made me want to know what hip-hop was. That was the song that did it. I immediately went home and called my friends, and we were taking apart my mom's friend's stereo set. We figured out how to make a mixer from the balance button and got it cracking and started making mixtapes, unquote. Andre's mom wanted her son to have somewhat of a normal life, despite her poverty. So they settled for a while in a housing project in Compton. Compton was the American dream. Sunny California. With a palm tree in the front yard, the camper, the boat. Temptingly close to the Los Angeles ghetto in the 50s and 60s, it became the black American dream. Open housing paved the way as middle-class blacks flooded into the city. Whites don't buy houses in Compton anymore. Which is where Andre began going to school. But he had absolutely no interest participating in school, except for one of his classes. I'll give you a hint. It starts with an M. That's right, Dr. Dre loved math class. During his sophomore year of high school, he even tried applying for an apprenticeship program at an aviation company. He was failing every single one of his classes except for math, so there was no way they could accept him. Obviously, fate had different plans, but Andre didn't understand that yet. He was devastated and upset at himself. He felt like a failure, yet he still decided to skip school every day. Instead of going to school, he went to the gym 
to try and work off his anger. He would spend time with his girlfriend and work off his anger in a different way. But when she told him he was pregnant, he ran away from his anger and his girlfriend. His soon-to-be son was then raised by his ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend. And her new boyfriend ended up spilling the beans about who his daddy really was. Uh, there was there was fighting, they got into an argument, and I told him, you know, hey dad, he's up. And then he said, you know, his direct words, like, nigga, I ain't your daddy. You know, you want to know who your daddy is, you want to know who your real daddy is, your real daddy is Dr. Dre. So from there, at the age of 12, is when I found out, you know, and I was on, uh, I, I felt like a void in my life, you know, like something I had to fulfill, just meeting my father for the first time. And since we're on the subject of dysfunctional families, Andre's mom was still jumping from relationship to relationship. And out of one of those love affairs came three stepsisters and one stepbrother. Andre was a bad influence to his new siblings, but his stepbrother envied him. He liked how much Andre didn't care about anything or anyone. And I'll admit, it's not the best way to start a friendship, but what a friendship it was. Andre and his stepbrother started becoming super close and soon they were inseparable. They were all living with Andre's grandmother because his mother couldn't seem to stay in one place for more than a month. She would come around for Christmas and give her kids gifts. But this year, they would get an extra special gift. One that would change them from a dysfunctional family to a somewhat functional one. She gave Andre and his stepbrother a brand new turntable and mixer. From then on, his grandmother's home was Andre's studio. For hours on end, he would work on his magic, taking pieces of different songs and sounds to make his own sound. He was finally expressing himself in a way that wasn't destructive and ultimately he enjoyed. By the next fall, Andre and his stepbrother had it down to a science. Andre would cook up a sick beat in a couple hours. And as he was making it, his stepbrother would write some lyrics, and they were pretty good, too. I mean, his stepbrother ended up becoming Warren G, who's a bit of a music legend, too, when it comes to West Coast hip-hop. When he was done writing the lyrics, it was a rap. No pun intended. All weekend, every weekend, they would go out to the club and watch their favorite rap crews perform, and sometimes even get up on the stage and perform everything they'd been working on. It was like a drug. They were high on adrenaline, although the brothers were also probably smoking that kush. And the more they kept coming back to the clubs, the more stage time they got and the more they got noticed. But one night, Andre just wasn't feeling it. It was just getting too serious, and he wanted to stay home and work on one of his songs. But his brother chimed in. We gotta stay in the game like Dr. J, which was the nickname of Andre's favorite basketball player, Julius Irving. Ultimately, his brother convinced him to go. And only a couple hours later, Andre was on stage, behind his worn-out, well-loved turntable and mixer. As he plugged in the power, he was astonished by the crowd he'd formed. He wasn't expecting so many people to be there, and he was reinvigorated by the rowdy crowd's energy. Yo, what up, Dre? His brother called out to him as he'd done so many times before. But this time, it was different. Andre replied, You can call me Doctor. Dr. Dr. Dre. Dropping chronic once again. It don't stop. Punishing punk motherfuckers real quick like Compton style, nigga. Doggy dogs in the motherfucking hells. Yeah. Long beaches in the motherfucking hells. The name quickly began to stick. 
and he ran with the doctor theme. His brother began making medical references in the lyrics of his songs, and Andre even showed up to the club in a lab coat once or twice. You said you're hurt. You said you're ill. Well, this is one time you can't use a pill. Now the two brothers were getting some real notoriety around Compton for a couple reasons. One of those reasons was that they were playing music that was pretty hard not to be noticed. I'm talking about gangster rap, with lyrics about violence and police brutality, combined with beats and sounds that kicked the schmaltzy number one hits of the 70s right out the door. The other reason they were getting so much attention was Dr. Dre's eccentric mentality when it came to pushing the brand and the idea of Dr. Dre forward. On the other hand, he wasn't even getting paid. At this point, Dre had dropped out of high school and needed to make money somehow to support himself and his retired grandmother. And he really wanted to consider taking this DJ thing all the way. Everyone around him knew that Dre was a talented DJ. The hard part was convincing the club to let him play his gangster rap. But for Andre, part of the reason he was so talented is that he knew gangster rap would be the next big thing. When the manager wasn't at the club, Dre would invite newcomers on stage to spit their newest and most dope raps. By doing this, Dre really befriended his audience. But as Dre spun his records for amateur rappers, he would pay closer attention and listen closer than anyone in the club. Because unlike anyone else at the time, the doctor wanted to make gangster rap his career. He wasn't particularly interested with anyone who came up to strut their stuff until someone came up to the stage with a real style. As he was walking up on stage, his confidence yelled at Dr. Dre in the ear and told him that this amateur rapper is talented. Dr. Dre tapped on the mic. Alright y'all, next up we got a dude by the name of Ice Cube. Ice Cube appeared on stage and immediately started rapping. Dr. Dre, who was DJing, weirdly understood the name Ice Cube. His flow was just so cool and his lyrics were powerful and truthful in a way he'd never really heard before. There was an ocean of unruly Compton natives at the club that night. Some of them were in street gangs, even rival gangs like the Bloods and the Crips. But somehow, whether they just didn't notice each other or decided not to notice each other, everyone got along as they watched and listened to Ice Cube, who was using fun and creative rhymes to paint a vivid, violent picture of the daily struggle each and every person in that club woke up and went to sleep to every day. Among these people was a 23-year-old who had made a pretty successful career out of dealing drugs. In a city where people were barely making minimum wage, he had already made $250,000. As he was listening to Ice Cube's performance, he couldn't help to think about his cousin who had been ruthlessly beaten to death just months earlier. At that moment, the young drug dealer hoped for a better life, one of music instead of violence, one that would allow him to tell the tales of the violence he endured through music. But then, the lights suddenly blurred on and the music abruptly stopped. A man stormed on stage yelling, I told you not to play that bullshit rap music. Now get the hell off my stage and don't even bother coming back. The drug dealer snapped out of his hopeful haze and trudged out the door. A couple weeks go by as Dr. Dre was trying to find new clubs to DJ at. Every club was looking for a DJ, but the problem was no one was looking for a rap DJ. The doctor was still determined to make rap his career, so he went to a new bar or club every single night. Yeah, going out on a Monday might be a little weird, 
But in a city like Compton, that kind of thing can get you killed. So on a Monday night, after a promising meeting with a manager at a new club, Dr. Dre and his brother were walking to their car when they saw someone trying to break in. Dre's brother quickly pulled out a pistol, but the man bolted into the darkness. And out of the darkness came another form of trouble. Police lights. The car pulled up and two rugged, hateful-looking officers hopped out. The two officers smiled eagerly as they approached Dr. Dre and his brother, who was still holding the gun. Get on the ground, the officer calmly said. But when Dr. Dre refused, the entire parking lot echoed of police batten smashing into skin. When the officers were finished, they left a parking ticket on Dr. Dre's car. Although I'm sure that was one of the worst nights of Dr. Dre's life, that ticket may just have been a blessing in disguise. Days later, Dr. Dre arrived at the courthouse to pay his ticket and ended up running into someone who would end up paying the ticket for him. He went by the name of Easy e and he just happened to be the same rich drug dealer who had watched him and Ice Cube perform. Since that fateful night, he used most of his drug money to start his own record label, Ruthless Records. Easy e asked Dr. Dre to get Ice Cube and some other MCs on board. At that moment, as they stood at the steps of the Compton Courthouse, they both began to figure out that their dream of making rap a career wasn't so far away. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. With Ice Cube's unbreakable rhymes, Dr. Dre's beats of fury, and Easy es harsh attitude, they were ready to stick it to the man through their music. And they did. Their first single was sold out all around Compton. And the group's first album, Straight Outta Compton, became a major success, despite an almost complete absence of radio airplay or major concert tours. But being the N-words with attitude, they went on tour anyway. And it was sold out. In the late 1980s, the demand for gangster rap was insane. It was a unique commodity, and N.W.A was the rawest of all groups making it. However, that means their shows were the rawest of the raw and were more like a prison riot rather than a music gathering. It got to the point where police had to attend the shows, but I'm sure you can imagine how that turned out. Thousands of people shouting and dancing violently, bouncing off one another like bumper cars. Ten police officers guarded the stadium in full riot gear, but it wasn't enough to protect them from the thousands who were chanting, Fuck the police! Fuck the police! The guards quickly called backup as the rappers escaped. The FBI got involved after that when they sent Ruthless Records a warning letter in response to the song's content. Through all of this mayhem, their manager had advised them to get at least a couple bodyguards. But NWA already had more guns than a small country. So they thrived and reaped the benefits of being a sold-out performing act, but also vigilant of the revolution they were beginning to cause. And they were just getting started. They started on their second album, but something smelled fishy. And I'm not talking about the $100 plate of caviar Easy e was eating for dinner. Let's just say that the group's manager, Jerry Heller, really smelled like fish, and he didn't even eat any caviar. 
But with Eazy-E eating expensive caviar every day, no one in the group could even tell that Jerry Heller had a plan to steal all the caviar. And right when they began to notice, he already ate it all. Okay, terrible analogy. But I guess what I'm trying to say is at the beginning, Jerry Heller was really helping the rappers out. He got them signed to a major label. He handled all their distribution. But all of that stuff was like a whole nother language to the rappers. And Jerry understood that. So he slowly took advantage of them. Jerry was handling everything. And one by one, they each started realizing that Jerry was using the group's money to pay himself instead of paying each and every one in the group. Ice Cube noticed it first, and he got out alive. He refused to sign a contract that would let Jerry take advantage of him for another three albums, which could be five years and a ridiculous amount of money. So Ice Cube, the best lyricist of the group, left with a vengeance. White man just fooling. The niggas with attitudes, who you fooling? Y'all niggas just phony. I put that on my mama and my dad homes. Yellow boys on your team, so you're losing. Hey, yo, Dre, stick to producing. Calling me on a fuck, you Benedict. Easy E saw your ass and win in it quick. You got jealous when I After Ice Cube left, Dr. Dre was next. He wanted to stay loyal to Easy e who had become one of his best friends. But he wanted Jerry out of the picture. So one day, as the two rappers lay poolside with at least 10 women giggling all around them, the mood started to darken. Dr. Dre looked at Easy dead in the eye. I want to make this work easy, but without Jerry. Unfortunately, Easy e was the last person to realize he was being taken advantage of. So Dr. Dre raged out of the mansion. He slammed the front door, and when he got to the front steps, he stumbled upon someone else who had a plan of their own. It was Easy's bodyguard. At the time, he was one of the best in the business. His name was Suge Knight. Suge was the only one who was suspicious of Jerry right from the beginning. Until that moment on the front steps of Easy es mansion, which Jerry actually owned, Suge had all the power of the streets, all the money from a high-class bodyguard, but no partner in crime. But now, as he shook hands with Dr. Dre, who had vengeance in his eye, Suge could tell it was the start of something great. The Hood Doctor and the Blood Gang Bodyguard started approaching all their friends. Well, at least the talented friends, because they offered all of them a job. The next order of business was to get Dre out of the contract he signed with Ruthless Records. As long as Dre was under contract, they would legally be able to continue to steal his money. And Suge Knight knew just what to do and he proved he could be the most ruthless of anyone involved with Ruthless Records. He sent some men with metal baseball bats to Easy es house one night, and that night, threatening turned to beating, and beating turned to brutal violence. And that brutal violence eventually, finally came to an agreement, but left poor Easy e destroyed mentally and physically. Dr. Dre had little to no knowledge of this, except for that he was now free from his evil contract. Yet again, Dr. Dre had no idea of the evil that lay right in front of him. So they continued to work together on starting this new label, and they needed a full roster of crazy good rappers on their new label if they were even going to be able to compete with Eazy-E and Ice Cube. So Suge and Dr. Dre stayed up all night multiple days per week, with Suge working on the business side and Dre working on everything creative. His mind was non-stop working. Except to him, 
It didn't even feel like work at all. One of Dre's favorite things to do is observe other rappers. Dre would go through several people a day. All he needed was 15 minutes to know whether or not he wanted to produce their album. One rapper in particular was fresh out of jail and fresh off the streets of Long Beach. They called him Snoop Doggy Dog. At the time, he was relatively new to rapping, but he was known on the street for his laid-back party mentality. Basically, he was known to smoke weed every day. After Dr. Dre met Snoop Dogg for the first time, he had a really good feeling about him. Everything was building to the peak of his success, but back in Compton, his brothers were falling to despair without him. While Dre had been in a world of music, his family had been in a world of their own on the streets. And that was exactly the world their mom told them to avoid. I used to always warn them about Cruz and Crenshaw. And there was a confrontation. And this big guy, they said he came from nowhere out of the back seat or something and grabbed Tyree and slammed him. But I think it broke. I think it broke his neck and, and uh, I see two men standing at the door with briefcases. Ma'am, your son was involved in an altercation, and he didn't regain conscious. The death of Tyree took a toll on the whole family, especially Dre. Why the fuck am I here? You know what I mean? And what the fuck am I doing? There's nothing that's important to me anymore. What's the long as you been in that space, though? You're never out of that space, especially when it comes to death. When it comes to death, if it's somebody that you really love, like a brother or son, you're never out of that space. You just figure out ways to deal with it because there are still people here that need me. As he said, he felt nothing, and weed just wasn't doing the trick until he found something Snoop Dogg had given him as a gift. It was a strain of weed called chronic. Chronic has become a word used to define high-quality weed over the years, thanks to Dr. Dre. And users say it is pretty high quality, creative, positive, motivating, pain relieving, stress reducing, low anxiety and no paranoia, with strong optimistic traits and a tendency to make one's entire body feel tingly days after smoking it, which was exactly what Dre needed at that dark time in his life. But how exactly did this expensive, high quality strain of weed help make Dr. Dre a music legend? Find out on part two of this Music Legends miniseries. Thank you all so much for listening to Music Legends. If you haven't already, share it with some friends. And if you liked what you just heard, write me a good review on iTunes or wherever you listen. I know it seems like a simple little thing, but it really does mean the world to me. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Chili Willy. I also want to give a quick but big shout out to my friend and teacher, Chase Thompson, who helps a bunch as well. He's a complete badass when it comes to podcasting and pretty much anything else audio related. Thanks for everything. It's only the beginning. And for everyone else... What music legend do you want me to do next? Hit me on the email at musiclegendspodcast at gmail.com or the snail mail or a paper scroll sealed by wax. 
whichever way you prefer to transfer words. This has been Music Legends with Chillin'.